Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome the Honorable Representative Malcolm Kenyatta to the guest chair today as we talk about politics and his historic run to be one of the U.S. Senators from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Malcolm is a Democratic member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, representing the Great District 181 which is located in a section of North Philadelphia. He was born and raised in Philly and earned his bachelor's degree in public communications with a minor in political science from Temple University. In 2019, he completed public policy training at Harvard's Kennedy School, and he has appeared on many local and national media outlets like MSNBC to discuss his take on critical political issues of our time. Malcolm Kenyatta, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, Oscar. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. WH Consulting Firm provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. We take a holistic approach to diagnosing issues and offer customized solutions to fit clients' needs. Our goal is to help clients maximize their productivity and well-being and exploit untapped capabilities. Clients can be sure that all WH Consulting proposals are designed around the latest evidence-based management solutions. WH Consulting is proud to have obtained Minority Business Enterprise Certification by the State of New Jersey. For more information, find us online at www.whconsultingfirm.com. So Malcolm and I, met probably five or more years ago at you greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce events where you were working at the time. And Malcolm, you probably don't even remember this event, but at one of the chamber events, we were waiting on Mayor Kenny to arrive to give some remarks. But before he got there, you took the mic. And I can't remember what you actually said, but it wasn't a speech. Nonetheless, it gave off like the speech-like vibe and I've never told you this before, but I lie to you not. I said to myself that day after listening to you, this guy has gone places <laughs> and look at you now, like you're making a historic run for U.S. Senate. So after the last four years we've had, I knew I wanted to talk about politics in season two. So I thought you'd be the perfect person to come and talk about politics with us. So Malcolm, let's get started. So we're going to talk a lot about politics in this episode, but before we get into the politics side of it, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners, you know, who is Malcolm Kenyatta, you know, beyond what they would read in a professional bio. Yeah. So first of all, thank you again for having me. And I'll say, if I, I do remember that, that, that event, my good friend, uh, Keith Boykin, I believe also came and spoke that day. It was a great event and thank you for being a part of it. For me, right, you know, of course, there's a longer answer I can give about sort of why I got involved in in politics. But I think the short answer is, you know, I grew up in an incredibly working poor family, um, and I was really upset about it. You know, I watched my parents divorce when I was uh, pretty young, and my, you know, mom took the kids, and I watched her work all the time. She was a home health care aide for, for most of her career. And... No matter how much she worked, we just couldn't make it all 
together. I mean, I ended up getting my first job under the table at the age of 12, washing dishes at this vegan soul food restaurant to just help with some of the expenses in that in, in the house. And that experience is unfortunately not that rare. Right. A lot of people have had similar experiences where you have a parent that's working full time, overtime, like my mom was working, but still aren't making a wage that provides a level of security and a level of dignity in the work that they do. And I just always felt like that wasn't right. That wasn't right. I always, you know, when I was at a young age, I, I didn't like bullies. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sort of ongoing form of economic bullying that we see. And we just saw it with what happened in Alabama with Amazon, where you had folks who wanted to unionize, and then Amazon was given months and months and months to bully people, do buyouts, threaten people, to keep workers from coming together, to make their collective voices heard. And we see it all the time in our tax system, in the way that we fund our schools, and some of the other things that we're going to talk about. This sense that poor folks and working folks, it is almost impossible in many aspects to get ahead, to move your family up the economic ladder. I mean, it takes multiple generations to even move up a little bit because for a young person born in in my district, for example, the third poorest district in the Commonwealth, the day they're born into the zip code, there are a bunch of challenges that they're going to be confronted with simply because of where they were born. Nothing about their potential, nothing about who they are, but the accessibility of a school that's fully funded, where educators are paid a fair wage, where it's fully you know, resourced and not just with textbooks, but with all the different services that young people need those things aren't going to be as accessible. The quality of the air that they breathe and the water they drink simply by virtue of where they grew up, there's going to be a difference. And so I say all that to say, you know, my whole entry into, you know, politics started at a young age, sort of having questions first about why things were the way they were and then starting to feel like, well, you know what? I have to do something about it. Right. So we mentioned working at the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce before mm-hmm. you entering into politics, but it sounds like you've always been interested in politics at a young age. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah. When I was 11, and I tell the story a lot, but I think you can draw a direct line from this story and what I'm doing right now. I was 11. I was living on this block, Woodstock Street, in my now district. And I came home and I was just like complaining about, you know, stuff that I saw on the block. And without skipping a beat, my mom was like smoking a cigarette. And she was like, well, if you care so much, why don't you go do something about it? And I was like, okay. And so I ran for junior block captain. And it was the first thing I ever did in terms of getting civically engaged. And it really taught me two lessons. One, nobody's coming to save us. But the good news, and this is the second thing it taught me, is that we don't need anybody to save us. That's the good news. That when we organize our communities, when people of conscience speak up about what our country says it is and what our country means for a lot of people in practice, 
that we have to deal with that cognitive dissonance, right? That we talk about freedom and justice and fairness and equality, but that's not the lived experience of a lot of people. Right. And it can be. And that's why every generation you've seen folks step up to demand the promise of America be made more real. And so, you know, when I was working at the chamber, I was on the board of the National Organization for Women. And I remember uh, the chamber was suing the city for wage disclosure when people were applying for new jobs. And I thought the chamber was 100 percent wrong on that. And, you know, I was working at the chamber and on my lunch break, I was organizing a press conference to, to protest what, what, what they were doing. I was, uh, you know, on the board of Liberty City, our political LGBTQ political action committee here in the city, and was just involved in a lot of different things as related to sort of organizing in my community. And so, yeah, I was always involved, always interested. I wasn't always sure elected office was the way to go because Sometimes it just feels so icky for a lack of a, a stronger word. But ultimately, if good folks don't step up and run, the folks who are full of crap, they run every single time. They run every single time. And so either we're going to sort of complain about it outside looking in or we're going to get in there and try to change it. Right. So from junior block captain, did you continue in high school as like class president or yep. even in college yep. and SGA. Okay. Yep. So you did the entire thing. Okay. Yep. Yep. You can bet I was, you know, I did all those things and, you know, was really, really involved in an undergrad with a variety of different things. Some student organizations, I was president of the residence hall association. I founded a uh, performance poetry group called Babel. I, was hosting protests and doing petitions and and everything else. And so I've always had this sense of we don't have to just shut up and take it, you know, that we can actually say something about what's going on. And so that really has been my commitment um, and been a real through line for me throughout my whole life. Right. So you are Philly, born and raised, went to Temple, have you ever had a time in your adult life where you moved away from the area and came back? And if not, is that something that you would want to do? Or do you see being born and raised and, you know, working in Philly is something that gives you this competitive advantage, right? What's your take on that? Because a lot of people, you know, do like to move away from home and, and get another experience. So, yeah. So Temple was, uh, you know, as a family school. And so my grandmother went to Temple, my dad went to Temple. My parents literally met on, on campus. And so, and I was born at Temple Hospital and grew up around the corner from Temple for most of my life. Even though we moved around, I was always sort of in North Philly. And after college, I did leave for maybe seven or eight months. Um, was working for my undergrad fraternity and was based in Ohio and Illinois and traveling all around the country doing stuff for the national you know, fraternity. But I will tell you, it's a real honor, you know, and a privilege in a lot of ways to go around this district that really raised and formed me and to now be, you know, representing this district and the legislature. It's a real privilege. And so, yeah, there's some people who move somewhere else and form home and build community. And that's wonderful. And But for me, I don't know if I would love this job in the way that I that I do if if I didn't get to feel like not only am I fighting for issues I care about, 
but I'm fighting for people like who I know and and who I love and who is so much more than some of the headlines that get written about North Philly, about our decay and decline. There's so many people here who have given everything they could and continue to build up the community and to deal with some of the challenges that folks here are facing. And so there's just a lot of a lot of pride I take in representing this district and also growing up here. Right. So everyone knows that politics is a notoriously difficult career to be in, particularly for underrepresented minorities. I've heard that. Yeah. (laughs) So you're a black man, openly gay in a relationship. Can you talk about some of the challenges you face because of these identities, as well as how you've been able to overcome these challenges? You know, let me be clear. I think there's a lot of positive things that have come from me having these distinctions of being a black man and being a gay man. You know, I think particularly right now, after the murder of of Dante that we all just witnessed in Brooklyn Center, uh, thinking about the lieutenant who was pulled over for no reason and pepper sprayed and thrown on the ground, even while I was in uniform serving this country. I mention that because, A, that's weighing heavy on me right now, and I'm sure right. so many people of color and people of conscience. But I do get frustrated that so often the only time we lift up the Black experience is when it's talking about our pain and our trauma. And every part of being Black is not painful and traumatic. Amen. There's a lot of what it means to be Black, you know, most of it. That is beautiful. And really, when we're talking about the pain and the trauma, it's external forces (laughs) that are affecting us. But I think, you know, one of the things growing up, at least in my community, being a working poor community, you know, we didn't have a lot. But there's also this give and take when everybody's sort of struggling, you know, this community that's built in hardship that I've always found to be, you know, really beautiful, that when stuff is tough, you go to your neighbor and, you know, what you make tonight, girl? And, you know, what's going on? You know, where the way folks are really committed to lifting one another up is really beautiful. And I don't know, again, I don't want to say that folks who live in gated communities, that they don't have community, but it's different right. when you live in a, in a space where you're very separate from your neighbors. Right. I think we grow up in my community, like we're not very separate. Like everybody kind of knows everybody. And whether it's the lock party or whether it's just the day in and day out sort of engaging with one another, just naturally, there's a lot of that that I wouldn't trade for the world. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And as a black gay man, there's also a lot in the gay community and our culture and the things that bring us joy and our parties and our conversations that are uniquely ours that, again, a lot of beauty in that bond. And so certainly there are challenges that come with that because we're talking about two communities that have not held political power to a large extent in this country. And so I talk about you know, things that are uniquely ours, but also certainly their unique challenges and trying to get people to 
the broader populace, right, to care about and focus on these challenges and to see people that come from communities like this as folks who can lead and be in positions of authority and be in positions of impact, that certainly is a challenge. Right. Because when a lot of people close their eyes and think about a United States senator, they're not envisioning in their mind's eye somebody who looks like me. Right. Um, same thing for a state representative in many cases, because we've elected 57 senators. Every single one has been a uh, straight white guy, or at least, you know, openly, um, or at least not openly gay. And so what that means is that when you are trying to disrupt that, that there are a lot of folks who say, oh, my God, well, you know, I don't feel this way, but there are a lot of people who won't support you because of who you are. And I don't know. I tend to believe that that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. I don't think people need to look like me or love like me to know that I'm going to fight for them. Mm -hmm. And that is ultimately, you know, what I have going to have an opportunity to prove here, my sort of theory of the case, that folks are hungry and I think desperate for authentic leadership that's grounded in the concerns that people are having. Right. So what aspect of it would you say is most challenging to be in politics? Would it be fundraising side of it? Would it be feeling like you always have to be on and can't perhaps make these public mistakes or gaffes? Would it be mm -hmm. the learning curve in terms of how to pass legislation? What aspect would you say would be perhaps some of the most challenging parts of being in politics? What's frustrating is a lot of folks in politics are full of crap. That's, that's the most frustrating thing because I'm just who I am. Everywhere I go, I'm who I am. And what you find is that so often, and not all of my colleagues, right? Because to be clear, I think there are a lot of folks who say, oh my gosh, everybody in politics is horrible. And I work with a lot of people who got into this for the right reasons, who work incredibly hard. And that's the lion's share of people I work with, frankly. But there is a vocal and impactful smaller group of folks who get into office and their whole plan is how do I stay in office, not how do I accomplish anything while I'm here. And particularly on the Republican side and who has the majority, they have the majority in the Pennsylvania House and the Pennsylvania Senate. There's a small minority of folks, but who have enough votes to block everything, who just block everything of substance. You know, first within their caucus and then within the entire chamber, they aren't as committed to making an impact as they are to making a name for themselves or to feeding the most rabid voices in their coalition. And that's really frustrating because put aside some of the big ticket issues that any person who even like even folks who don't follow politics that much would know that people would be on opposite sides of. Take, for example, I mean, this shouldn't be a big issue that's debated, but I'll just use it. Doing something about gun violence, right? There are like that's certainly an issue that you get a lot of fever pitch debate about. But when you look past the folks in the chamber, right, when you look past the elected officials and just talk to people about the issues, you find that most of the American people actually support us doing something on this issue. Almost all Americans support increased background checks. 
and support us doing something about lost and stolen weapons to make sure that folks have to report a gun when it's lost or stolen. Support us doing something as it relates to extreme risk protection orders. So folks who are at grave risk of harming somebody else or themselves, that those weapons can be removed from them. These are things that are broadly popular, but they're not broadly popular in the place where the decision is made on whether or not we do something about it. And that is what's really frustrating, that there's a bunch of stuff we could do that has wide support among people, real people, that we don't address. That just, it really boggles my mind. And how do you account for this discrepancy? Do you feel like perhaps some of the people who are polling who say they support this may be lying to pollsters and, you know, privately telling their representatives and senators no? No, it's what I just said. These folks are only focused on remaining in office. And here's the problem. With our primary system the way it is, and with our districts gerrymandered in the way that they are, the districts are, most districts are solidly blue or solidly red districts, most of them. And so what that means is that most elected officials only have to be responsive to the most extreme voices in their particular party. And you see that, I think, in a really damaging way, particularly in the Republican Party. You do. Where you have the base of the Republican Party, which has been fed over and over again lies, lies that led to violence that we saw on January the 6th and has led to violence in other instances as well. I mean, just think about that, right? On January 6th, insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, leaving multiple people dead, leaving all types of damage. And then a couple of hours after that, you still had 190, I believe, Republicans vote to overturn the election. Like, come on. And the reason they did that is because there are a lot of folks who were maybe not present at the insurrection, but who bought into the lies about the election being stolen and all of this, that even though the majority of people know that that's nonsense, they're being responsive to that small minority of people who they believe hold the key to whether or not they get reelected. And so that's what I mean when folks are more committed to saying than they are to doing something. Because real leadership would say, whether I get reelected or not, the people who elected me, I need to be honest with you and say, this is a load of garbage. The election was free and fair. This was actually one of the freest and fairest elections we've had. And it's really difficult for some people to level with the base of mm. their party. So what advice would you give people wanting to as you mentioned, you know, be this good person in politics. Because, you know, as a person who study organizations, I understand how systems can actually change people as well. So people can come in with the greatest intentions. But when their goals become misaligned or aligned with what they want, a few things that they want, then systems have a way of changing a lot of people. <laughs> so what would be your advice to people who want to do good and enter politics, but also, as you mentioned, stay good and be a person of conscience in these roles? Well, just tell the truth. That simple. Just tell the truth. I mean, it's, it's really that simple. If you tell the truth all the time, then you never have to come up with some lie or recalibrate what you believe based on the moment. Just tell people what you believe. 
and trust that if folks believe what you believe, that uh, that they'll reelect you. But I think that people give you the benefit of the doubt, even if you don't agree with them on every issue, if they know that you're playing it straight. And so my thing here is not about a specific calibration. It's just about being honest and authentic. The other thing we have to do ultimately is change the system. I mean, government doesn't disappear because we will it away. I mean, there's going to be elections and somebody's going to be elected. The problem is you look at the makeup of Congress right now, 54, I believe, percent in this Congress, millionaires. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if we elect only one, two or three folks who really understand in their bones what's at stake and what people are dealing with, then even if those folks aren't co-opted by the system, they're drowned out by a bunch of other people who don't want to move in a way that addresses the root causes of issues and addresses the concerns that, that people have. And so ultimately what we have to do is have good people run for office and run for every single office, run for school board, run for city council, run for mayor of your town, run for borough council, run for township supervisor, run for Senate, run for Congress. That is ultimately what it takes. And I think that what we see so often is that good folks say, well, you know, I'm not going to run because uh, that's all a mess and it's nasty and uh, I don't want to be a part of that. If we all take that approach that uh, well, I'm not going to be a part of that, then the folks who are fine with things as they are or folks who want to make it worse, then they get to set the terms of engagement. And I promise you, those folks run every single time. They run every right. single time. <laughs> you know, I've talked to folks who say, uh, well, Malcolm, I'm too young, or I don't know if I have enough qualifications, or on and on and on. And they talk themselves out of running for office. And I say to them, like, oh, my God, you ought to see some of the people I work with. Right. These people don't know anything. And they're more than happy to be like, I'll run. <laughs> and so I think good people have to just step up and run. That's a perfect segue to the next question, because, you know, mm -hmm. you won your first election in 2018. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to the voters who may think your Senate run is a bit premature at this stage? I don't have much to say other than I think that what we need right now is not folks who are committed to spending their lives in politics, climbing the ladder. But what we need are good people who understand the issues on the ground in the highest positions in our in our country. I mean, you know, there are folks who say, well, what we've always done is had folks just climb the ladder, you get this job to get this job to get that job to get this job. And, you know, I would ask folks who say that, how has that served us? How has that served us? I think when you spend the whole time focused on just climbing a ladder, the altitude does something to your brain. I think in the Senate, we need people who are closest to the pain. Mm. And so I've been in office long enough and have worked in politics for a long period of time and understand in a real way and have serious experience crafting legislation, working with people, understanding how things get done, how things don't get done, how things should get done. But I also haven't been in office long enough, to your point, to either be co-opted or cynical about what we can do. And so I think the Senate desperately needs people who are young and who are newer to the political space 
we need people to run who've never run for office in Senate and in Congress. I mean, we just saw that in Georgia. We just elected two senators who've never held public office right. before. And I think that that's a good thing because career politicians talk about how much experience they have. And you look around your community and not a damn thing has changed. Mm -hmm. So when folks say, you know, I've been in office for 20, 30 years, I wouldn't be celebrating that if I've been in office 20, 30 years and we still are facing these same problems. I wouldn't be holding that up as a badge of honor. I would be quietly saying that in shame. <laughs> I think that ultimately what we need are people who are outside of the traditional experience to govern from a place of lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. Think, for example, and we see it every campaign cycle. We see the commercial and uh, these folks are like fumbling through the bills right at the kitchen table. And then this millionaire went to all the uh, elite schools, walks in front of the camera and says, hello, poor working person. I'll take care of all your concerns. And it's like, no, I don't trust you to take care of my concerns. Working people can speak for ourselves. And so not only should I be running, but we need more people who are working a minimum wage job to be able to run for office. We need that person who has to drive an Uber and work full time to be in office. We need the mom who has to send their kid to a school that's not fully providing for their needs. We need them to step up and run for school board. We need young people who are on the front lines of the gun violence that we're facing to be on city council because the status quo has not served us at all. And so I really want to hear nothing from the people who've either got us to where we are or who haven't moved us from where we are. I don't want to hear anything from them about who is best prepared to fix these problems because they've had their chance to fix these problems. They haven't fixed the problem. That's why we need a new generation of leaders to rise up, to step up, to fix these challenges. And when we think about all of the big movements, these movements were run by young people. Mm -hmm. Dr. King was in his 30s. The folks who were running ACT UP and who were leading in the gay rights, young people. A lot of the women who are leading in women's rights and the feminist movement, young women. And so this idea that change is going to come from the folks who've been there forever and ever and ever is ahistorical and also flies in the face of, the, you know, that famous quote, you know, what is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing, expecting different results. And so when I hear people ask that question, you know, I ask them, what has the status quo given to us? Well, I really uh, appreciate your answer because, you know, we saw that in the last election, the presidential election, and, and people were using some of the same arguments about we shouldn't elect a career politician. We need someone with, you know, fresh eyes and gave us Donald Trump. And clearly, you know, I don't want people to think that you are saying that you don't value experience because I, I know you and I definitely think you understand the value of experience and what that can bring. What I said yeah. is we need to value lived experience. We need to have people who are experiencing the failures of our government to be the ones who are going to drive the change. That's why I talked about the right. minimum wage workers and the moms and all those different things. What Donald Trump said was that he benefited from 
the corrupt system, thereby he was going to be able to best repair the corrupt system, which I don't think is the same argument as, you know, I have no experience. He said, yeah, I have a lot of experience. I've experienced dodging taxes and <laughs> I've experienced using the bankruptcy system to my benefit. I know all of these people. They're all full of crap and I'm also full of crap, but at least I'm telling you I'm full of crap. And so I think that there, you know, are people who gravitated to somebody who, even though he was bad, was authentically bad. You know what I mean? I think he, you know, he used language like the swamp. Mm -hmm. That's true. There is a swamp in D.C. Now, what he forgot to say is that he's an alligator that lives in the swamp, <laughs> but there is a swamp. So if Pennsylvania voters elect you, what can they expect from you? We heard some policy positions, but I want to give you this opportunity to elaborate as well as to self-promote, right? Like, tell us about your accomplishments so that the voters can know. What they can expect is authentic leadership that's grounded in lived experiences of folks who know what happens when government fails. When I talk about health care for everybody and the need for health care for everybody, I talk about that as somebody who grew up not always having health care. Mm -hmm. As somebody who watched both of my parents ration their, their medicines, watched my mom ration her insulin, um, not take the other medicines she needs because they were too expensive. Watched my dad who had epilepsy, same thing, not take the medicine he needed. And I ended up losing both of my parents mm. before I turned 27. Mm. You know, nobody should have to bury their parents that young. Yet there are so many people across the country who are, who have the same experience or even worse stories than I have because we have a healthcare system that leaves so many people with mountains of medical debt, which we know is the number one reason for bankruptcy in America. When I talk about housing and the need for housing as a human right, I talk about it as somebody who moved five different times as a kid. Who knows what it means to come home and have your mom say, hey, pack up all your crap. We can't stay here anymore. Can't afford to be here anymore. And there are so many families who know what housing insecurity means, mm -hmm. who were worried about maybe they could pay the rent, but they can't pay the light and the gas bill. Maybe they could pay the light and the gas bill, but they can't pay to keep the Internet on. And in a moment right now where physical school buildings are still closed, that means that their young people aren't getting the education that they deserve in this new virtual world. Right. And when I talk about education and the need for us to pay our educators and to make sure our schools are fully resourced, I talk about that as a kid who went to a Philadelphia public school with textbooks that were out of date, but was lucky enough to have some good teachers who you know, bought the teacher version of the book mm -hmm. and then would go and spend their own money to copy the pages and give us all worksheets mm -hmm. and who would stay after and make sure they poured into me and into their other students in spite of all the odds. When I talk about gun violence, I talk about it as somebody who lives in a community every day ravaged by gun violence, where so many folks are being murdered at the hands of a weapon. But also I talk about it as somebody who understands the pain of losing people I love to suicide, mm. knowing that death by suicide, that firearms play a big role in folks 
who have died by suicide. And then when we talk about gun safety, it's not just about ending gun homicides, but it's also about ending gun suicide. Right. When I talk about raising the minimum wage and the right for folks to unionize, I talk about it as somebody who's had multiple minimum wage jobs, who had to work multiple jobs while I was in college, trying to be a student leader, trying to just be in college, mm -hmm. but needed to work because I couldn't afford books. Parents couldn't pay for books. And I depended on my friends who let me study with them or borrow theirs. So for me, what we have in the Senate right now, what we have in Congress, are a bunch of people who are pros at navigating elite spaces. They went to all the right schools and did all the right things and got all the right internships. But for many of them, the empathy that some of them do have does not translate into the experience that I have. Mm -hmm. Experience that is grounded in government missing the mark for so many people. And so what I would say is this. If we don't elect another millionaire to Congress for the next decade, we still won't be hurting for that experience in Congress, okay? Mm -hmm. We'll still have a bunch of them there. But what we don't have right now are people who understand in their bones what is broken because they've lived the brokenness. Mm -hmm. I have lived the brokenness of our, of our experiment in democracy. And that's what it is, an experiment. Right. But if government says it's going to focus on the needs of working people or struggling people, we can't do that without having working people and struggling people in government. And that is the fundamental point that I'm making. And I would say what I said before. Folks don't have to look like me or love like me or be from my community to know that there is nobody who's in this race or going to get in this race who will fight harder for them than me. Period. Period. So. Have there been any surprises for you thus far in this campaign and or any differences in this campaign from your previous campaign? You know, happy, happy surprises. Mm -hmm. I'm really moved by all the support that we've seen. Average donation, 33 bucks from donations from all 50 states, including our future 51st state, District of Columbia from 59 of the 67 counties in, in Pennsylvania. I think we might be at all 67 at this point. That is really exciting for a first time candidate mm -hmm. who was not the typical candidate to be receiving an outpouring of support like this. And not because people are wrapped up in a cult of personality, mm -hmm. but people believe in what I talk about in terms of building a coalition, building a coalition. You know, right now in Congress, we have enough mascots for our concerns. We don't need another mascot. What we need is a movement, mm -hmm. a movement big enough to meet the moment that we're in, a moment where so many people, this cruel pandemic has stolen so many lives and laid bare a lot of what's been broken. Right. You know, there was a public health crisis and disparities in the delivery of health care well before we knew what COVID was. Right. And what this pandemic has done is laid bare a lot of what we have yet to fix. And that is really our work, right? As I said, my mom said, you know, if we care so much, we got to do something about it. And this idea that somebody, 
is going to come save us is not what I've seen as a, in my experience and also as a student of history. Mm-hmm. But when we build big movements, there really is nothing we can't do and no challenge we can't face. And that's what has been exciting, seeing all the people who want to help build a movement that doesn't center me, but centers them. And that's the type of senator I would be. Excellent. Excellent. So talk about, and you've been talking about it, but I want you to elaborate even more on where we are at the moment right now, like your assessment of our politics on the state and national level. We are at a fundamental crossroads. What we do next, I believe, is for all the marbles. Mm -hmm. You know, we did what we needed to do in terms of electing a new president, winning both chambers by slim majorities. But there's a real movement that is underway on the non-positive side, Mm -hmm. led by lies and disinformation and misinformation that wants to tear the country apart. And if we don't deal with that, we don't root out the systematic racism that's at the undercurrent of that. If we don't deal with the income inequality that is a part of the undercurrent of that. If we don't deal with the lack of trust and faith that people have in government institutions, that's also at the undercurrent of that. We're at real risk. You know, there's nothing written on a tablet, right, that came down from on high that says America has to succeed. I mean, when you look at the history of civilizations and of governments, America is very young in terms of the grand scheme of things. And so the way that America has succeeded is because all those movements that I've talked about that have been led by young people that have taken the promise of America, which our founders outlined, which didn't include either of us when they were talking about freedom and fairness and justice, they weren't talking about us. But every generation has stepped up to say, no, 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 you have to include me too. You have to include me too. And that is the moment we're in, where the folks who want to expand that promise, we have our work cut out for us, A, but we also have a short period of time to do it. When you think about the climate crisis, Mm -hmm. you think about gun violence, you think about debt, student loan debt, medical debt, all these different things. We are in what I've called a decade of deciding, where on so many of these challenges, we have a short period of time to act. And we have to act in a big way to really meet the moment, as I'm prone to say. We have to meet the moment. And if we meet it together, then I'm really confident about our ability to get it done. So it sounds like you're hopeful. So can you talk to us? Absolutely. I mean, listen, I couldn't get out of the bed if I didn't have hope. So share with us why you have this hope and what the pandemic and this racial reckoning moment has taught you. I have hope because I think about, you know, last summer, myself and other members of the Black Caucus took over the rostrum in Harrisburg in an act of uh, nonviolent civil protest to demand that the speaker didn't just go back to business as usual, but that we actually did something about government-sanctioned violence. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen just because we went and stood on the rostrum. It happened because we saw protests in 61 of our 67 counties. To get anything done in 61 of 67 counties in Pennsylvania is hard. Mm -hmm. But you saw people of all different races and religions and ages stepping up, demanding better. And so I'm hopeful because so many people's eyes are open about the fact that democracy is not a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Folks are waking up to the recognition that it's on us to do something. And the power of that is when we recognize where the power lies, then we can utilize that power for universal good. And the power still lies with the people. Right. Still lies with the people. And when people step up and speak up and when they speak out, even when their voice shakes from fear or from uncertainty, and when we do that together, so we're all not just speaking up by ourselves, but we're speaking in a chorus, there is something so powerful about that. And I think that even in these moments of great sadness and frustration and trauma, I also hear, of course, of people who want change, mm-hmm. who want our future to be better for our kids and our grandkids than it is for us. I mean, I remember my grandmother calling me last year and she was on the verge of tears and she said, I'm sorry, baby. I thought we had fixed some of this stuff. Mm. And here you are fighting these same fights. I refuse to have to have that conversation with my kids Mm -hmm. and with my grandkids. I'm already like, I don't even have kids yet. I'm already annoying, like have grandkids, right? Right, right. (laughs) But I refuse to have to have that conversation with them. And the way I ensure that we don't have that conversation is that good folks have to speak out about the type of world and type of country we want to see. And I'm seeing that particularly from young people and Gen Z and and Gen X. And, And that is really, really exciting to know that we are on the vanguard of our moment. This is our moment to chart a path forward. And I think that folks are ready to do that. This has really been amazing. So I want to give you one more opportunity to share a final message with our listeners and particularly the Pennsylvania voters. So what would you like to say to them? I'd like to say simply this. Bravery begets bravery. Bravery begets bravery. Every time somebody steps up, speaks up to demand better, and they're brave enough to do that in the face of huge challenges, that encourages other people to be brave. And what might start out with just one person speaking up turns out to be a whole group of folks speaking up. And there is nothing more powerful than a committed group of people calling for change. Nothing more powerful than that. And so I would tell folks, be brave, speak up, speak out, and let's go get some big things done. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm. I am so happy that I was right so many years ago that this guy is going places. And I'm a New Jersey voter, so I can't personally vote for you, but you definitely have my full support. And oh, I, I hope Pennsylvania voters go out and mass. Oh, you can still go to MalcolmKenyatta.com. And Absolutely. There. <laughs> Absolutely. We all can do our part to elect good people. So I'm going to let you say that one more time. Give us the website again. You can go to MalcolmKenyatta.com and, and get plugged in there. Like That's the way we get this done. I'm not taking a uh, you know penny from corporations, corporate PACs. And so we're doing this, as I said, you know, 33 bucks at a Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So I am definitely going to be a part of that to make that commitment to you, but also this commitment as well so that our listeners, particularly the ones in Pennsylvania, can go out and support your historic run for U.S. Senator of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So again, thank you so much for being here, Malcolm, and I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me, brother. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show, 
and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, WH Consulting Firm, LLC. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Thank you.